Isaiah chapter 60, I'm teaching a series, foundational series. And um, foundations, that's what you start with when you build something. You know, before you can build a beautiful house, you've got to get a strategy for the basement. There's either a, a full basement or there's a crawl space or there's a slab, but you have to have a foundation. And Jesus basically said, look, build your house on a solid rock. This building has these poles, which are underneath supported by piers where people drilled past the silt, past the gravel, past the stones, into the bedrock underneath this big, beautiful basin called Chesterfield Valley. And it withstood a flood because the flood did hit it. The building was filled with so many cubic feet of water and 10 feet deep uh, up to almost, you know, five feet or six feet from the ceiling. And it, it, it broke the windows, but it didn't break the walls. The walls are built uh, solid and the foundation is on the rock so the how, this house didn't shift. How many of you remember the video of that farm, white farmhouse over in Illinois that was swept away? I met a family who knew that the family. It was a beautiful farm family and they got out alive, but it's famous. And I'm sure that house was probably built nicely, but the, 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 this one is built, you know, it's kind of like the, the big bad wolf. Remember the story when we were kids? Uh, the houses that the three little pigs uh, tried to construct, you know, and the, uh, they drove up in a truck, three little pigs, construction company, right? And they, they built different, some of them had different attitudes, uh, one cut corners, and they built their house out of. The next ones kind of tried to build it a little bit more fortified and built it out of. And the third one was old school and wanted to build it out of solid material and built it out of. And so when the big bad wolf came to blow huff and puff and blow the house down, two out of the three blew down. But the one that didn't blow down, guess what, was the one built upon the rock. And Jesus said, if we, you and I, as followers of him, build our lives on his word and really live it, uh, we will be like the wise builder that uh, built his house on a rock where when the winds blew and when the rains came and when the flood hit, their house stood. We don't want to be, and we're admonished not to be, the, the foolish builders that build their house on sand, on something that's shifty, shaky, uh, something that vacillates, something that's in fact not solid or substantial. Well, I want to propose to you as I'm teaching on this series of doctrine, of uh, sort of a systematic theology for our church body, I feel like I need to really fortify you in how trustworthy, reliable, inerrant, and faithful God's word is. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. I'll, I'll tell you that I, the reason this building stood is because it was built on rocks. And Tom Hall built, designed this building. I knew the designer himself. I knew the first owners, Charlie uh, Harris and the team. And uh, we inherited that and, and bought this, and we've been working. Uh, it went from a warehouse of light industrial use now to God's house for the glory and purposes of God. This is God's house now, and, and it is physically built on good footing. Aren't you glad? Because when that flood hit, it was crazy. And there were some airplanes that got picked up and were moved. There were some buildings that got destroyed. There were some you know, things that we had to tear down, many houses we had to tear down because they were just couldn't withstand it. But we've been able to withstand it physically, literally, 
and prophetically and spiritually, it represents something for us. And I want to tell you the anchoring positiveness of God's word, how faithful it is, how reliable it is. It is the standard by which we live. And as we go from Genesis to Revelation, we could actually trust that it was inspired by God. It was written down by people, moved by the Holy Spirit. It's been preserved throughout from the oral history to the written history. It's supported by archaeological external evidence. There's internal evidence for it we'll talk about a little bit. But right now I want to go to Isaiah 60 because this is white hot in my spirit. When I was preparing, this is what came up foremost in me for this message today. Isaiah chapter 60, and we'll read verse 1, New American Standard Bible. Uh, It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light. Now get this, last part of verse 3. And kings, to the brightness of your rising. Or another translation says, to the brightness of your shining. It's important we understand today that this was written for Zion, which was Israel. And the discussion was about Jerusalem being a praise in the earth. That was Isaiah prophesying to ancient Israel so many centuries ago. But you also have to understand This is also bumped up into New Testament context, and here's why. Zion is also a reference to the church. So as it literally happened at this point in history to the Jewish people, it's also a prophetic indicator. And Jesus came and said, look, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Uh, uh, He told him in Matthew chapter 5, he said, let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Peter said it this way, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and you're called and you're chosen to what? Show forth his praises, show forth his excellencies. Uh, In his light, we see light. Man, there's an anointing on what I'm teaching you right now. And 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 I love these two verses, and I'm sure you have them committed to memory if you've been walking with God for any length of time. Go to Uh, Psalm 119, and we're going to look at 105 and 130. Psalm 119 is a marker for you uh, of a chapter. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, but it takes only about 15 or 16 minutes at average speed to read that chapter. There have been times when I've lapsed in my uh, uh, interest in the Word of God where I kind of got a little dull, and I felt like this was um, like battery cables and a fresh charge, like a, a, pow, a road assist. When I'd, I'd go back to Psalm 119, and it has so many references to God's word. It, it tells you it could keep you out of sin. How can a man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. His word will help us. It'll bring conviction to us. In fact, oh, I'm getting all over the place with this, but the, the anchoring scripture for this part of the series is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter, it's the other 3.16. John 3.16, you know that one. But 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
And let me tell you, God's word is spirit and it's life. And God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And I want to tell you, while we are to honor him with our body, our, our intellect, we're primarily called to walk in the spirit. That doesn't dumb the other aspects down. It's just a correct uh, prioritization because the Bible says the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord and he searches his whole innermost being with it. And basically what that means is God is a spirit and instead of speaking to us through psychic phenomena or through uh, soulish intellect, and instead of just prompting us by sensation of our five physical senses with our bodies, he is a spirit and he speaks things to us in the spirit. And his word is spirit and truth. His word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. You can trust its authority and its authorship because God moved on people to write it. You could have people argue with you. Well, didn't men write the Bible? You could say emphatically, yes, but they didn't do it of their own volition. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. God had his hand on it. Well, what about the telephone game? What about things being lost over time? God is in his love, I'm convinced, is so thorough that he can uh, exempt his word from the telephone game uh, uh, of people bringing in warp, warpage and twisting, and he would preserve it. And I'm thankful that even in the early church age, two, three hundred, four hundred years uh, into the church age with the, the, the councils that convened to assess all the writings at the time to make sure there was a criteria that it was, did it glorify Jesus? Did it, did it, uh, was it, did it, was it consistent with other scriptures? The criteria, I'm convinced the Lord helped even in those periods. And he's helped us today. The beginning of the publication industry occurred in the 1400s when a guy named Gutenberg developed movable type so that the first thing printed on it would be the Bible. And the biggest selling book today is still the Bible because the Bible is the word of God. It is not just the underpinning of Western civilization. It's the word of God for all of humanity. Psalm 119, verse 105. Say this with me. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You ever have a call for light on the subject? You ever go into a dimly lit room, what's one of the first things you do after you bang your shins and trip and get mad? What's the first thing you do? Reach for the light switch, right? Everybody say, let there be light. First thing, and you know, we just had Earth Day, and the first thing, he said, let there be light, and there was light. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. We're called to walk in the light, 1 John chapter 1. His word is light. His word is truth. Look at this. The, that your word is that, that provisional element that helps me get out of the fog of the difficulty of human existence. Your word reveals who you are. It reveals my origin. It reveals that I'm made in your image. It reveals my purpose. And it shows and underscores that I have a destiny. This isn't just random and chaotic. It just didn't start from an accident of single-cell microbes. It started from a God that has a plan and poured out wisdom from the top down, and he's faithfully demonstrated himself through generation after generation. Hallelujah. Look at what this next verse says. I love this. Psalm 119, verse 130. It says in the New American Standard, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. 
I qualify for that because I don't know everything. I need to, on an as-need-to-know basis. Uh, when I got married, I, I was simple concerning having never been married and being a male, the feminine mystique on my new wife, I would occasionally slip aside and say, Lord, would you please help me to know how to uh, respond to and flow with and honor this wife? Because you told me, uh, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel and as fellow heirs of the grace of life and that you don't want your prayers to be hindered by mistreatment. So God, show me what to do. Show me the nuances of it. And I, I think I heard a joke um, where somebody said, uh, uh, God gave this guy uh, a wish, you know. He said, uh, wait, what was, how, how did it go now? This is, I, I'm starting out on something I can't even remember and I'm hoping somebody in here knows the joke. But basically, uh, I could build a bridge to Hawaii for you so you don't have to fly, you could just drive. Like there, were two, one, there was one other thing. And then the guy said, I, okay, my prayer is, uh, my wish is that I want to understand my wife. And he said, uh, what did he say? You don't know the punchline? Why did I try to start that joke that I didn't remember? <laughs> I meant well by that. It was amazing. In, in, my, in my mind, in my spontaneity, I thought, maybe this will work. But right now, uh, I just burst into a sweat. Yeah, 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 God said I can't do that or something. He said something like, uh, yeah, well, I'll build you a bridge or something like that. <laughs> right, thank you, Marilyn. See, these are dangerous jokes, and you need a lady to step in and intervene for the brother that's putting his foot in his mouth. But anyway, you actually can know what to do. There was a medical doctor in our church who by, um, by training wasn't really uh, skilled with financial things, but yet was at that time doing day trading and stock issues years ago. And he trusted the Lord for wisdom and light. And he got with God and he said for a two week period, he was so excited. He came like a child. He said, Pastor Jeff, I asked God for wisdom and for this period of time, this happened and this happened and this happened. And, and it's just this amazing window. I, I've seen these kinds of things unfold for me where I was in Kosovo and we had a team going to Zimbabwe and we were helping a pastor and his church to get their building back up off the ground. They had gotten stuck. And um, yet I was in Kosovo and I remember I was at this Muslim family's home. They were graciously hospitable and invited us into their home. And I was out on their um, uh, porch and I had a satellite phone and I, was, and I had to make the decision what I felt like was I had the weight of the world on me. And I was on the phone with my father here in town, and uh, I had to make the call to cancel that trip and divert and start to rally people to go into this war zone where the Muslims had been persecuted by the Serbians, and there was a terrible hatred moment of uh, ethnic cleansing, wickedness, diabolical, but God called us to go there. And then there have been times with Service International where there was... Uh, Hurricane Sandy, and there was Hurricane Katrina, and there were, there were tornadoes here, and there was an earthquake there, and a fire there, and war breaking out there, and, and, and famine there. What, what do we do? What, what should we do, Lord? But thankfully, we have an answer here. Your word is a light to our path, feet and a lamp to our path, and the entrance of his word gives light, and it gives understanding to the simple. I'm about ready to give you something that is very practical, but very helpful if you'll pay attention to it. Years ago, I heard a man named Mark preach this about when you're, when you're in confusion, 
when you're leaning on your own understanding or you don't know what to do, double up on the divider. He said this, and it sounded peculiar to me, but then I began to remember what he was, I started anticipating what the preacher was saying because he believed in the word of God like I do, like you do, that it's faithful, reliable for faith and conduct. It's authored by God, though written by men. It's been preserved and protected and we can trust it. It's trustworthy. And he said, uh, he reminded us of, of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says God's word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it's able to pierce the division between soul and spirit. So many decisions in the kingdom of God are made soulishly. So much intellectualism tries to crowd out this vibrancy of what I'm trying to offer to you today. That um, the word of God is a spiritual element. And God is, and his Holy Spirit is our teacher. He'll convey things to us, spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And he'll prompt your spirit and he'll bring distinction. So we don't lean on our own understanding like Proverbs chapter 3. And we'll, we'll go with what the Lord tells us to do. I needed the divider to come in on that porch in Kosovo when I had a team of people that had uh, set time aside and money aside and were really passionate about helping in Africa. There's a big plaque in a 5,000-seat auditorium in Harare, Zimbabwe, of a beautiful church, Celebration Church, pastored by Tom Duchel, that thanks our church and Service International for getting them from point A to point B. He, we, we drove to their place. It was the lowest economy on the earth and uh, one of the most blighted places in, in recent history. And yet God was calling them to build a, a great house, but they got stuck. And he said, and I quote, we just needed the spirit of faith that you carried. Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But you can't do everything. That's where God wanted us to be. But then at one point, God had me divert all the groups and everybody but one went with us to Kosovo where we began what was such hard, thankless, underappreciated work, plowing through concrete, laboring on hard ground, going into a post-communist environment, an Eastern Bloc nation, going to the precious Albanian people in Albania, just 35 miles uh, west of the borderline where we were. Prior to this in the 70s and 80s, the president of that nation said, we are the pure atheistic state. And in the 19, early 80s, I began to pray, or 70s, I began to pray, God, since they say that door is closed, I'm believing God for it to open. Since they say this is an unreachable people group, God, I'm believing that, that we're going to get to reach this people group. And so there I was with a satellite phone, and I was just having, you know, like our cell phones go out all the time. Satellite phones are even worse. All the infrastructure was torn up. The bridges were blown up. And power, water, all kinds of things. There were mines planted in the schoolyards. There were broken-hearted people everywhere. The depression was palpable. And, uh, but yet, in the midst of all that darkness, God was saying, Let, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. During the Jesus movement in Southern California, as harsh and dark as I thought society had become, the smugness on my generation unappreciative of the previous generation who fought in the wars, went through the depression and the dust bowl and all the challenges and the rationing and fought in the Pacific theater and in Europe and then came back and built a beautiful economy, amazing infrastructure, highway systems under Eisenhower, all the beauty of it, 
Uh, and yet the youth counterculture got smug, got sophisticated, thought they knew more than they did, as we often do, and uh, drifted farther away from God's values, God's purposes, and God's plans, and yet God wasn't going to let that be the final say. He raised up people like you and me to pray, and people that were prayerful at that time began to pray intervent intervention prayers for the lost generation. They prayed for the cold formalism that was trying to come on the church to lift, they prayed for the lost souls to return and to come to the Lord. And there was a great move of the Holy Spirit in denominational churches. And there was a great move of the Holy Spirit amongst the lost. We're products of it. Because we keep going, we can lose sight of it. And because history revisers try to come in and blur and sully these things, we can quickly lose sight in a generation. There are people that are passionate about trying to kill faith in a 40-year period. God is passionate about faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God's passion toward the church is what is going to win. God's passion toward you and me for us to conform to his image shall surely come to pass. I am confident of this very thing. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Christ. And as tough as life has been for some of us, as difficult as the last year or so has been, as peculiar as things have been, this was very similar in the time of Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. And behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your shining. When I was a teenager, I was praying with about five or six adults, uh, guys about my dad's age, and then I was the only young person there. And we were praying, and I noticed these men just loved the Lord. They had an enthusiasm and a youthful zeal for God, yet with stability and, and, and maturity. And uh, one of the men said, I perceive that God wants, I see like light coming out of St. Louis. When he shared it, it was such a vivid word picture that it, it imparted and it put an impression in my thinking. And I thought, my, my spirit bore witness with it. Whatever, the, I was born in San Francisco, I was raised in San Diego, I got saved between San Bernardino and Los Angeles, and I transferred here when I was a teenager. As a transfer, though, I have a passion for this environment. I tried, when we moved away to Bible school, to go to Europe and live in England and go preach to Europe, because I saw then what I see now in America, a post-Christian drift away from the things of God. You could see indicators of it in many areas, and it was farther down the negative road than where we were at the time. And yet, in 1980, in fasting and prayer, the Lord spoke to Patsy and me to come back. The, I was with Pastor John and Jana yesterday, and, and, and I drove by the driveway where I turned to Pastor John in 1976, and I said, the Lord spoke to me and told me to build a home base in Chesterfield from which to reach the nations of the world. He remembers that. He remembers I pointed down into this valley. It's only three or four miles from where God originated that idea. Even when I drifted from it and started to try to live in Europe and misunderstand it, God said, no, I want you to build a home base in Chesterfield from which to reach the nations of the world. And by the way, a wise master builder is going to build not on pretense, not on fad, not on trends, but on the everlasting, wonderful, capable, trustworthy word of God. As a church body, that's what will sustain us for decades, and that's what will assure that we can get this job done. As we keep adhering to and walking hard after God, his word is a lamp to our feet, it's a light to our path, and the unfolding of his word, the King James says, the entrance of his word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. It just needs to have entrance. 
So we need to do everything we can. I'm, I'm preaching so you'll fall in love with the Bible. I'm preaching so you'll develop intimacy with your one main uh, Bible. Listen, uh, Eric Clapton and, and Jimmy Page and, and all these amazing rock stars, uh, Pat Metheny from over there in Kansas City, uh, they have a main guitar. I was listening to McCready from uh, Pearl Jam, and he was talking about this one uh, Fender Stratocaster that's his main guitar, and it, it's his main guitar, and, and that's what he took it. I mean, he slammed the head of it into the amp once. Who knows why they do that? A showmanship, I guess. It has a big chip on it, you know, and then it's all worn down. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan had a guitar that was very special to him that his wife bought from a pawn shop when he hardly had any money, and it was so precious to him. It was the main guitar. Uh, Eric Clapton had a main guitar through many years of some of the great songs we've heard and enjoyed. But I want to tell you, if you and I and we will fall in love with God's word and will study to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen who need not to be ashamed, we'll handle it accurately, we'll rightly divide it, we'll be able to withstand the gross darkness that's coming upon the peoples, we'll be able to judge scripture with scripture and rightly divide the word instead of wrongly divide it, it will prevent us from being deceived because uh, of men and winds of doctrine and trickery and cunning craftiness will try to alight and come and you'll know in your spirit I've listened to good preachers preach and then amalgamated to something that really was soulish and was unscriptural, and I knew that, that I had a little red light go off. And, it, and then when they got back on track, it was like, okay, now. And it was not because of my, some sort of intellectual prowess. It's because the word becomes a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. There's hope for all of us. Smith Wigglesworth, who's famous in the Pentecostal circles, was a plumber, and, in ninth, and when he was 48 years old, he became a Christian. Late in life, as, a, as an adult, he didn't know how to read. He was illiterate, but he learned how to read from reading the Bible. And he developed a, a literacy and a fluency in the scriptures, and it made him effective. And he even said that uh, for his leisure time, all he did was read his Bible and pray due to the, how harsh and challenging the spiritual battles are in his life. So I say all that to say his word is shining. That this, there was a time in the Bible that said that there was a famine of the word. Boy, we don't want that to happen in our generation. Somebody paid a big compliment to me, oh, about 15 years ago and called this a Bible church. And I said, thank you. Uh, I, I, that's a great title for a church. Some people say, well, is that, a, is that a hope church? Yeah, this is a hope church. Is that a love church? You bet. Is that a faith church? Yeah, it's a faith church. Is it a word church? Yeah, it's a Jesus church. Yeah, yeah, keep talking. Yeah, it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to be about the Father's business. How in the heck can we know the Father's business unless we read what he wrote in the business document? Right? So we are getting hungry for the word of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. First five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Jews call it the Torah. It's the law. It was written by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. You bust out into the Chronicles and the Kings, and you read all the history books. You read with fascination the poetry books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. You read Job and the amazing perplexity of how the enemy attacked a guy for a period of time and how he landed on his feet by the grace of God and his mercy. And it helps you not to be afraid about Job. I've had people say, I just identify with Job. Well, why would you do that? 
He was uh, way before Jesus. Job would be saying, don't do that. I mean, I didn't know a whole lot. You know, uh, yeah, everything that's written in Job is biblical, but not, it's not all accurate doctrine because Job didn't understand everything at that time. And now we have uh, a more sure word of prophecy. We have uh, 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 Jesus coming in on the scene, the word made flesh, and we have the ability to look and the enhancement and benefit and value of being able to see all 66 books of the Bible and look and, and judge scripture with scripture and see uh, and read and look at everything in the light of our redemption. We have these, these laws of biblical interpretation which prevents us from deception. We, we see what has, is sustained and what's for today. We see what's about to happen in the prophetic scriptures. There's so many, pro- a third of the Bible is prophecy. And, uh, you know, many of things have been fulfilled. Things are being fulfilled in our lifetime. These are prophetic times. These are amazing times to be alive. I, I'm so grateful I'm alive right now. I'm grateful I'm this age right now. I'm not longing, oh, I wish I was 40. I wish I was 30. I wish I was 20. I already did that. I'm excited about where I'm at right now. I'm excited about the vintage that God's made me to be. But I'm also excited and enthusiastic that the Lord is visiting us and helping us to be malleable and be fresh so we can have the new wine flowing and new wineskins and think strategically the same eternal message of the gospel in fresh format that we could reach a lost and grossly dark, dying world. I believe there are answers for today. I believe there's hope for today. I believe there's buoyancy and joy and resurrection power for today. And when the word of God comes into our lives, It can foster revelation. When the word comes into our lives, it can show us. Double up on the divider. There have been times when I've had to make a lot of decisions. Have you you ever been in a situation where it seemed like, what do I do with my taxes? What do I do with my retirement? What do I do with the remaining uh, mortgage? What do we do with our adult kids? What do I do with this neighbor keeps parking on my lawn? What do I do with, uh, you know, and, and, you know, that one was a major one. What, What do I do? You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Or you're like, Joshua, I've never passed this way before. What do we do? Um, like Jehoshaphat, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are fixed on you. And in, in the case, that sounds kind of spiritual and vague and pious, but really we could look into the word. Be a Psalm 1 person uh, where you meditate in his word day and night. And then the Bible says you'll be like a tree planted by the water and your leaf won't wither. People are paying big bucks to get rid of wrinkles. And if you just root yourself in the word of God, you will look 25 years younger, 30 pounds lighter, 50% more of your IQ smarter, right? Psalm 36.9, look what Psalm 36.9 says. Psalm 36.9, it, it affirms this light thing. We're to walk in the light. It says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. See, there's an eternal perspective gain for the believer. You get over in God and you start to see things differently than you've ever seen them. You start to experience things you've never experienced. He invites you into his presence. And in his presence, I remind you, is fullness of joy. In his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. There are answers to prayer in his presence. There's hope in his presence. There's breakthrough in his presence. There's healing. You know, when Jesus showed up in places, Lazarus would pop out of the grave. You know, the leper would no longer have leprosy. The blind guys would see. What a trip would that be? How many days would they be screaming their heads off, looking at stuff going, what is that? That's a tree. Oh, yeah. I've been touching these things. Now I get to 
What's, it, what's the color of that? It's called green. Green? Wow! That's not what I imagined. But now I see it. You imagine that? There was a girl that got healed at the beginning of our church named Georgia. She was diminishing with multiple sclerosis and could heart, she needed help to the bathroom. She had crutches. She was slight. She couldn't hold herself in a chair. She was a young girl. And she got instantly healed. She was screaming her head off. She's screaming, ah, ah, you can't make this stuff up. And she came running out of the building. She kept looking at her legs. Oh, it touches me emotionally because I didn't have her problem, but her problem was so terrible, and she got free from it. The guy with Legion was clothed and seated in his right mind. He got delivered from demons so severe. Um, uh, Mary from Magdala had seven demons, and then she didn't. And she shared, you know, they preached the resurrection and they went off and accomplished something with their lives. They came out of oppression and into breakthrough, out of bondage into freedom. Hallelujah. I think about C.S. Lewis. He came out of intellectualism into true recognition of who God is. Paul himself, who was highly educated, said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. By the way, he wasn't dumbing things down, mouth breathing. I just want to keep it simple. Jesus loved me, this I know. That's not simple either. That's the most profound song you're ever going to sing. He said, I just want your faith not to rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Lift up your hands with me. God's word is true. His promises are true. I'll I'll close with this. This is a practical point about um, the uh, external evidence of God's word. You guys want to hear it? I should let you hear it next week. Well, I got to find it on my page now. I'm in one of those moments and this this is almost like when I tried to tell that joke. Somebody's going to send that joke to me. You feel so sorry for me now. You're going to help me with it. Where did I? I love you too, man. This is great. This is where uh, you humble yourself Uh, in the presence of your church body. (laughs) Years ago, a man named Josh McDowell, have you ever heard of Josh McDowell? He wrote a book called um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But actually, he was writing a book to disprove the reality of God and the viability of the Bible. And he was shocked. He said, there's a bibliographical test that has to come on any document to determine whether it's authentic or not. And... He, he points out that in the ancient writings, the, I, I don't know what the word is. We'll come up with it when I come up with that joke punchline. But this is not a joke. He said, Caesar and the Gaelic Wars, there were only 10 manuscripts that survived that archaeologists found. Plato, that people quote all the time, only seven. Um, Aristotle, there were only 49. Uh, Euripides had only nine. Uh, Sophocles had 193 in his writings. You remember Pliny the Younger? Pliny? In fact, if you're looking for a name for a child, Pliny, boy or girl, sounds pretty good. Pliny! Uh, Only seven. Uh, Tacitus had 20. The New Testament has 24,633 and counting. I went to a museum at the Jerusalem Museum and there's a special area just for the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
1948, a young Bedouin shepherd boy over by the Dead Sea, up in a place called Qumran in the caves overlooking the Dead Sea, threw a rock at a cave to try to scare out a sheep that had gone astray, and he heard a kerplunk instead of a conventional a rock hitting a rock, and he looked in there and found a whole bunch of dust-covered urns. Uh, he pulled them out and found amazing uh, papyrus and scrolls, vellum scrolls that had been rolled up and preserved uh, for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. It was one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of the 20th century, famously now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Jews have dedicated a museum uh, as a tribute to what they found because what they found coincided. This came at a perfect time in the 40s. Uh, after the war, people were cynical, dismissive, maybe not trusting the Bible so much, and God just happened to have these, this external evidence piece to uh, reinforce and bolster externally what we know internally, that the word is a lamp and the teaching is a light and it emanates from God and it's trustworthy and reliable and faithful. But God came along and said, hey, look at this. And all of the Jewish books except the book of Esther were found in that uh, hoard. And uh, it is some of the most amazing and it demonstrates the consistency with which God has preserved his word. Hallelujah. Let's all stand up on our feet. I'm done now. Oh, God, I pray you give me wisdom. Hallelujah. Everybody say wisdom. You say, boy, I wish I knew what that MD was thinking about with the economy. Who wants to get a breakthrough on your finances? God will give you wisdom. How about a breakthrough in your marriage? I always want one. Right, Patsy? We, we love each other, but you can always get better. How many of you want a personal revival in your life, in our church? Man, God, I mean, this, God is doing some exciting things in this church. It, I have been in this church for a long time, all my adult life, and I'm telling you, it's better than ever. There's so much sunshine and brightness in this place right now because of the grace of God. Hallelujah. You go forth with joy. You be led forth with peace. Spend time in the Word, right? God bless you guys as you go. We're trading our sorrows.